Welcome to Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, the editor-in-chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. This is getting yeah. exciting. We've done done a couple yeah. of uh, live episodes now, and so this is one that we actually advertised that it was going to be live, and we're, we're going to be uh, live with Admiral Stavridis in a minute to talk about his new book, uh, but, but kind of fun to see the development uh, of the show. And this is our last one uh, that we'll do before uh, before Christmas. So I can't believe it's Christmas week. But to your point about the live stream, so if you're watching this, Heather, our producer, will be monitoring the chat, and she'll be curating the best among them, and we'll feed them in the discussion. So without any further ado, let's bring in our guest, our dear friend, Admiral Stavridis, a repeat, the, our returning champion to the show. Um, and I'm about uh, to say a repeat offender. For his crimes of being a great guest, however many months ago he's back. Um, we bored everybody with our our long ancestry of knowing each other, uh, so we, we shan't do that this time. Um, but we want to get right to the subject at hand, which is your new book, The Sailor's Bookshelf 50 Books to Know the Sea. Um, so this is not unlike some of the other compendiums that you've done in your series, but this one is uh, particularly germane and broad-reaching in terms of both reference books, literature, histories. I mean, you've drawn on a lot of different things. So how did this idea come about, and uh, and who are some of the, the, the big names that are in this one? I think like everybody who has gone to sea, I have spent a fair amount of time on the oceans with a book in my hand. Um, so often when I could find a minute, um, go back to the fantail of a destroyer and sit on a bollard and read. Um, eventually through a series of computer errors, um, they allowed me to become the captain of a destroyer. And so I would sit in my captain's chair on a quiet Sunday in a transit across the Atlantic and uh, have, a, have one of Patrick O'Brien's novels uh, open in my hand. Um, as a strike group commander, enterprise carrier strike group, I continued to read, read, read. And so I read very broadly, as, as you both know, Bill and Ward. But, um, you know, like any sailor, um, at the heart of a lot of the reading I've done is my relationship with the oceans. And so it seemed logical to me to kind of scratch out a few titles. And what really got me started was uh, a young midshipman. Uh, had sent me an email and said, hey, Admiral, what are some books I should think about reading over the next three or four years as I'm out uh, at sea and, and serving the nation forward? And I started to jot it down. And, the you know, the list got longer and longer and longer. And um, I came up with this idea of, okay, well, let's try and pick out 50. It's a nice round number. Um, and then put them in some categories that make sense. And, and then provide a guidepost, uh, a short, snappy essay, if you will, on each. And I don't even like the word essay, more an, a, 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 an anecdote or better yet, a sea story about my relationship with the book. Why does, um, why do the novels of Patrick O'Brien particularly resonate with me? Um, why is Contiki an important book for a mariner to read? So um, over the course of a couple of years, I was adding to this, taking it back and talking to others and eventually came to the 50 books, um, which I think for me 
personally have, have been a gateway to the oceans and continue to be books that I reach for and pull back, hence the title, The Sailor's Bookshelf. So, Admiral, just for our readers, uh, the, the, those broad categories that you list, the first one is the oceans. So those are books that are about the sea. Uh, and, and there's some interesting ones in there. Uh, you know, as you start off with the Atlantic, great sea battles, heroic discoveries by Simon Winchester. Then um, one that surprised me was called Cod, a biography of the fish that changed the world. And, you know, that's a pretty interesting one. And then, you know, you've got a couple written by folks here, uh, you know, who you knew and worked with at the Naval Institute. So Tom Cutler is still on the staff and he's the, uh, the editor of the 15th edition of Dutton's Nautical Navigation, a great book about, you know, how to navigate. And then uh, Jim Barber, who was the uh, CEO of the Institute, uh, you know, for a long time in the, in the 80s and 90s, uh, his, his uh, book, The Ship Handler's Guide, Naval Ship Handler's Guide. So just talk about a couple of those books in, sure. in the oceans category. I'd love to. And, and let me start with uh, retired Navy Captain James Jim Barber, who was the uh, CEO, we call it today, the president of the Naval Institute for uh, well over a decade. And uh, I was on the board as a junior officer, really looked up to him. He passed away a few years ago, um, but just an iconic mariner. And I met him when I was a young uh, ensign on board a brand new Spruance class destroyer at the time, he was the captain of a cruiser, USS Horn, I believe. And, you know, we all thought, and his wardroom would talk about what a masterful ship handler he was. Um, and I was so happy to see Captain Barber, after he finished up as the head of the Naval Institute, decide to uh, bring this venerable classic, um, of ship handling into the modern era. And he was the one who really talked about how to drive gas turbine ships, how to um, use all the, the new tools that are available technologically in ship handling. So I, I love that book. And, and you don't believe me, you don't have to be a ship captain to read it and appreciate it. Um, I'll, I'll end on uh, naval ship handling though with a quote from uh, Admiral Ernest King, you know, arguably the toughest, most difficult, toxic leader in the history of <laughs> the, the admiralty. You know, he, he, he's famous for one quote, which is, when things get tough, they send for the sons of, you know, how to end it. Um, and, and he lived up to that every day of his professional life. But he also said, among many other quotable lines, um, Ernest King said, the mark of a great ship handler is never getting in a situation that requires great ship handling. That's a pretty powerful statement, both for driving ships and for life. But uh, you're great to, to bring up that one. The, the one you didn't mention that I like, and again, I think is a book that's very approachable for anybody, is Longitude uh, by Davis Sobel. And it, this book is set um, in a period of time in the sailing world where we knew how to measure latitude, how we're north and south, but we couldn't figure out longitude. And the principal reason was because we had lousy chronometers. We, we couldn't, uh, we, the big we, the maritime community, if you will, in the age of sail. And so you could, you could tell where you were on the earth 
north and south, but you had a lot of trouble telling exactly where you were east and west. And Davis Sobel has written this very short, snappy book about the search to solve the challenge of longitude. It's, it's one of my favorites on the list of 50 because it dives you into um, the world of 18th century technology and, and chronometers and, and politics and geopolitics. The race to be able to navigate with that level of precision was uh, extremely important. So there's two, there's two I would mention. And that so, is a great. That is a great book. It's as you said, very very approachable. It's a thin, quick read, but it's it's just a fascinating book about, uh, as you said, a, a a broad strategic perspective, but also the very narrow challenge of of uh, determining time accurately and, and and in a reproducible manner from ship to ship to ship, right? And being able to know what time it is, so when you shoot the stars, you, you have a good sense of where you are longitudinally. That's great. Your uh, the next section of the book is uh, is titled. Wait, wait, wait. before we before we go to the next section, I do sure. want to highlight one other book because a lot of people will have seen the movie A Perfect Storm, and if you'll recall in the movie, you know George Clooney famously you know goes to the bottom with his ship and so on, but there's another sea captain in that story, and it's a woman, uh, Linda Greenlaw. And Linda Greenlaw, um, who's portrayed, I thought, very effectively in, in the film, A Perfect Storm, in real life, she is, of course, a sea captain, a fishing boat captain, a long line swordfish captain, one of the toughest fishing kind of jobs you can have. And she has written a memoir um, with a terrific title. It's The Hungry Ocean, The Hungry Ocean, A Sword Boat Captain's Journey. And it is a marvelous read. And believe me, anybody who thinks, you know, women uh, are not great mariners ought to pick this book up and read it. I'll have to check that one out. And uh, I, I, later on in your list, you do have Sebastian Younger's The Perfect Storm. So that's a good, uh, uh, you know, pair of books there. So the next, I started to say the next uh, grouping of books from 14 to 21 is titled The Explorers. Uh, so some of the ones in here that would be, uh, you know, expected, and you mentioned earlier Kantiki by Thor Heyerdahl. I read, I had to read uh, excerpts of that when I was uh, in high school. Mm -hmm. I just had a, a, a science teacher who was really into that, uh, but then I had to read, you know, sections of it again when I was here at the Naval Academy as a midshipman. It's an amazing story. Uh, so talk about some of the explorers that stand out to you. Well, I think uh, Thor Heyerdahl is is a, a marvelous story of um, a, a desire to prove a theory, which is that the Polynesians could have um, gone from the Polynesian South Pacific to South America. And as we know now, um, they made, they, the Polynesians, made immense, immense long voyages across the Pacific, probably going to the South Pacific from East Asia. So Thor decided to bring a crew together, uh, build a raft or have built a raft that was roughly the technological match of those uh, Polynesians and then set out to sail it. I mean, it's, it's kind of the ultimate uh, do-it-yourself project, right? And it, it's also written with some wit and some verve, and, and I like it a lot. Um, there's two books in there, I think, that touch on Captain Cook. And, uh, you know, in, in most people's view, the 
greatest maritime explorer of all time. And there are some strong contenders for that, you know, from Magellan to Bartolomeu Diaz and, and many, many others, um, Cabot and so on. But Captain Cook in a series of voyages um, re discovers Australia, um, unlocks the Pacific. He's, he's so closely associated with the Pacific and I think um, the, the particular book that I put in there is Captain Cook, Master of the Sea, one of many biographies, but I think it's the best of, of James Cook. And then I guess if I were going to point to a third book in that grouping of explorers, because, you know, so often explorers have bad endings, right? I mean, they, you know, Captain Cook was murdered uh, on, on, uh, on the islands by a group of angry indigenous who didn't think uh, he had fulfilled his previous legacy to be a god. And um, is so often explorers are lost at sea or they lose their crews or terrible things happen. Maybe the greatest exploration story with a happy ending is, is the story of the endurance. This uh, vessel that goes to, to the Arctic to uh, kind of get to the pole and it, it's led um, by Ernest Shackleton, who is this marvelous figure and he, and he sails his ship, the endurance down to the Ar the Antarctic and they get ice bound and then the ice contracts and crushes his ship. So he's parked on the ice with, you know, 150 from his crew and, you know, what do you do now, Captain? And so what he does is he organizes the crew. They move to a better location. They, they, they haul the ship's boats. Then he handpicks a handful of the very best of his sailors. And they set out to get to the Falkland Islands in order to get a rescue ex expedition back, knowing that his sailors have just enough food to last through this period ahead. And the the voyage in this small boat um, rivals that of Captain Bly, um, who is put in the water by the, uh, by the, the uh, mutineers, of course, in, in a, the mutiny on the bounty story. But Ernest Shackleton makes it, gets a rescue, gets back, and saves his entire crew. They all survive. I mean, it's a marvelous story of uh, overcoming adversity and challenge. And so the, it's been told many times. I think the best telling of that story is by a woman named Carolyn Alexander, who I've met on several occasions. She's written uh, a number of superb uh, histories of the sea. And uh, so she tells that story very well. And there's an illustrated edition of it because um, the expedition's photographer, this is in the early days of, of photography, takes these incredible photographs. So if you can get that illustrated edition of the Endurance, Shackleton's legendary Antarctic expedition by Carolyn Alexander, that, that would be one of the highlights from that list in my view. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. And um, right after that, uh, I'll, I'll just note for our, uh, uh, our listeners that uh, another book that you highlight here is uh, by Jacques Cousteau. So, um, you know, I, I, think, I, I, I think I'm probably the only person on this podcast old enough to no. have been have been captivated by Jacques Cousteau, who popular. I mean, he invented the aqualung effectively, 
Yeah, yeah. His, his specials were must-watch TV back, oh, you know, when yeah. we were in elementary school. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. he was a rock star. He was a rock star. Everyone. He was, he, was, uh, he was a rock. I mean, by the way, it's always interesting to me to think about how someone like Jacques Cousteau would be able to use social media, YouTube, TikTok. I mean, think about how he was able to use a relatively primitive method of mass communication so effectively television, black and white um, television, but he, he awakened this vast interest in the oceans. His, his classic book, of course, is called The Silent World. And it's also a very moving story of Jacques Cousteau. And, you know, he had challenges in his life like we all do. And um, it, 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 it's in the end a, a, a book about how the sea changed him and, and saved him in many ways. It's a very powerful read. Love it. Uh, the next section of the book, uh, this is books numbers 22 through 35, is uh, Sailors in Fiction. You start off with uh, Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, then Master and Commander by Patrick O'Brien. So talk about what's, what's your favorite work of, of maritime fiction or naval fiction? I'm going to cheat slightly and say it is all of the books of Patrick O'Brien, the very famous um, Aubrey, Captain Jack Aubrey, and his fearless sidekick and ship's surgeon, Stephen Matterin. And this is a series of 20 volumes. It's a, it's a wow. master, masterwork of fiction. I mean, it's Jane Austen quality writing goes to sea. And the, the lessons of character, friendship, geopolitics, everything is set at the, the height of the Napoleonic Wars, the interactions, the brief flickers you get of Lord Nelson, um, the, the stock market fraud that Jack Aubrey gets caught up in. And, and what makes the series work so well, I think, is this yin and yang of Aubrey, who is a master of his environment at sea, one of the great sea captains. Yet when he goes ashore, he's like a babe in the woods. He's constantly being fleeced. He gets intoxicated at the wrong time. He has a, affairs. You know, he's he's a master at sea and he's an absolute boob ashore. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen Matterin, the opposite. Matterin uh, ashore is this superb duelist, this excellent dead-eye shot. He's a uh, a brilliant espionage. He's an intelligence agent. He moves effortlessly through society ashore. He speaks seven languages. He's elegant, but at sea, he's an absolute Bubenheimer. He can't find his way from the front of the ship. He doesn't know the front of the ship is a bow and the back end is a stern. It's all a mystery to Stephen Matter and at sea. And so they they kind of you know like the old Jerry Maguire movie they complete each other right <laughs> and, uh, and it's it's the books are profound they're funny they're they're set all over the world they cover twenty years um, so without question the uh, the series I think is the very best and the first one in the series if you've not had the pleasure of reading these books just pick up the first one um, it's Master and Commander. And, and many will have seen that film uh, with Russell Crowe plays, plays Jack Aubrey, and I think plays him very well. I would say watch the movie to get kind of the visuals and then, and then pick up Master and Commander. Um, you, you cannot go wrong. 
Um, so be, before we move from that, Admiral, sure. the, the I think people are either from two camps. They're either the O'Brien camp or the Forrester camp. Not that it has to be binary. Um, but when you describe the flawed protagonist, the flawed hero, that to me is is not only what influenced my, my body of fiction, but also what was engaging about the O'Brien series, but also the Forrester series. Horatio Hornblower is a flawed oh, yeah. protagonist as well. And, and when I was teaching at the end of my career at the Academy, um, I would teach Mr. Midshipman Hornblower just to, and, and then from here, let's talk about why is fiction, you know, relevant to the Navy and, and, and those who are serving now, because some could dismiss it as, oh, it's just fiction. But what I wanted the plebes I was teaching plebe English to to see is 17-year-old Horatio Hornblower, right? You remember that scene where they have a privateer and, and the, the captain says, a midshipman's command, and he just puts Horatio on this boat that is sinking because it has rice in the hold that's getting wet and it's expanding, right? right? And I said, okay, you guys think you just had a bad come around? Check out Horatio here, right? He he gets to, you know, his first command is this ship that's sinking. And and I just loved how that gave context, uh, you know, the age of sail versus the 21st century sort of thing. Um, so uh, is it either or? or how would you contrast? It is, it, is, it is not in any sense either or. I think that Hornblower is more approachable, particularly for younger readers. His characterizations, other than Hornblower, are not very deep. I, I don't want to say it's two dimensions and you go to three dimensions with O'Brien. It's not quite that stark. And I agree with you, Ward, that uh, Hornblower himself is a, is a, is a profoundly interesting uh, protagonist in many, many ways. Um, but I think there's really ultimately no comparison in that um, you want to you want to read Hornblower, you want to read C.S. Forster. I'll come back to C.S. Forster in a minute, um, but you you really want to experience the incredible depth and nuance of uh, Patrick O'Brien. Um, the other thing that O'Brien brings that. Hornblower series does not, and, and you could look at this as plus or minus, I suppose, but much of, not much, but uh, a significant part of the um, O'Brien series is actually set ashore, set in early 19th century England in ways that you don't see in the Hornblower series until the very end of the series when it's Lord Hornblower and he's frustrated because he can't make his garters work properly and he's about to get an award. And, you know, there's, again, a lot to love about the Hornblower books. I have the complete series downstairs. Um, but uh, Patrick O'Brien, I think, for, for nuance, for depth, uh, for geopolitics, and for that portrait of 19th century uh, British life, I think, uh, wins my prize. Now, having said that, Patrick O'Brien um, will forever be remembered for those novels, that one series of novels, whereas C.S. Forrester's body of work, I would argue, is broader, more interesting in its diversity uh, than Patrick O'Brien's. And I'll, I'll give you two quick examples. One is not on the list, but um, C.S. Forrester wrote uh, The African Queen um, about a, uh, you know, it's a famous Humphrey Bogart movie about a, a putt-putt boat on a lake in Africa. 
Um, but it's a, it's a novel of character. It's a novel of plot. It's during the colonial wars. Um, African Queen, marvelous book. Not enough blue water in it to make my list. But the C.S. Forster book that made my list is a masterpiece, a masterpiece, a single volume. It's called The Good Shepherd. And it's about a captain, again, a flawed character who is in command for the first time in the Second World War. He's in charge of a convoy trying to get it across the Atlantic. Um, it is the basis and a pretty accurate basis for the film Greyhound with uh, Tom Hanks, which I highly recommend. But the book is beautiful, powerful, break your heart beautiful. And I would say as a single volume, I'd put that uh, way up in the pantheon. And in terms of C.S. Forster, the breadth of what he wrote about, uh, really deep and marvelous. So yeah, kind of inside part. baseball, I think the Naval Institute Press owns the rights to The Good Shepherd, but it's currently not in print. No way. I, I think I, so. I, I'm going to have to talk to Adam. But there's some there's something when Greyhound came out that emerged, uh, and uh, we'll have to run run that one. Yeah, I have I have in my library, and people don't know this, but I I collect uh, first editions and particularly signed first editions, and I have uh, three first editions of C.S. Forrester, including a signed copy first edition of The Good Shepherd. I'm very proud of that book. Oh, by the way, by the way, speaking of which, over my shoulder is Punk's War, signed by Ward Carroll. There it is, right there. I always notice this when you're on MSNBC. I'm like, I tell Carrie, my wife, hey, there's Punk's War. Appreciate the love, Admiral. Before we get off fiction, I could talk about fiction all day because it's really my passion. Um, if you have not read recently The Old Man and the Sea by mm -hmm. Ernest Hemingway, pick it up and read it again. It's very short. It's a novella, really. And it's about resilience. It's about determination. It's about growing old. It, it is about what generations owe each other. One of the great small appearances in the novel is the young boy that Santiago, the fisherman, is mentoring. And the relationship between the two of them is powerful and beautiful. Um, it, it is a wonderful book particularly uh, for those of us who are getting a little more senior. Uh, it's a book I read every couple of years, and it is a book that is just full of life lessons and resilience. And, of course, the story of Santiago and the great fish that he almost landed. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I, in fact, I picked that up after the Hemingway uh, biopic that came out last oh, year. Which was uh, fabulous. And, and reread it. The, you know, from a technical standpoint, the, the meter – and, and the use of diction there is a master course. It is. Not unlike Red Badge of Courage. That's another one that, uh, yes. uh, not in this topic, but one that, that military professionals should reread from time to time, uh, both because of the story, but also because of the way that, uh, in that case, Stephen Crane writes. It's just genius. You know, you and I as writers, we look at that kind of thing, at least for me, I'm like, I should just saw my hands off because yeah. I cannot write like that. I know. No. I could I could not agree with you more. And by the way, on to the old man in the sea, final thought there. Um, you know, I, I started years ago to look for a first edition and actually a first edition hardcover novel is 
relatively easy to find. It'll cost you a few hundred dollars, but it's not a true first edition. The true first appearance of The Old Man in the Sea was Life Magazine. Life, uh, right, Magazine right. Life Magazine ran the entire novella in an issue with a beautiful picture of uh, Ernest Hemingway on the cover. Um, I, I am a huge Hemingway head. I mean, I have, I think, 11 first editions, including a signed first of A Farewell to Arms, which, uh, you know, they're not making that signature anymore. And, uh, and by the way, I will be the writer in residence at the Hemingway House in Sun Valley this coming summer. Um, it was the last of his many residences. He lived, obviously, all over the world, notably in Key West, Cuba, Paris. But at the end of his life, he, he went to Sun Valley, Idaho. He was very happy there right up till the minute that he killed himself. Um, and yeah, a big, complicated life. Um, and uh, anyway, they do a writer-in-residence program. They've asked me to come up there, and so I'll spend uh, a week or so up there putting finishing touches on my next book. In dreary right. Sun Valley. What are you <laughs> yeah. gonna do? How will you summer. make it? Yeah, no, no, it's great. And, and the, house, the house itself is beautiful. And as you would expect, overlooks uh, a beautiful trout fishing stream and views out to the mountains. It's, Sounds it's very nice Hemingway-esque. Yeah. Before we jump, before we leave uh, the fiction genre, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, book number 28 on your list is Run Silent, Run Deep oh, by Ned yeah. Beach. And uh, we work at the Naval Institute. The headquarters of the Naval Institute is called Beach Hall. It's named for Ned Beach and for his dad, both uh, captains in the U.S. Navy and, and uh, both wrote for Proceedings. And then Ned Beach wrote this wonderful novel of a World War II uh, submarine captain and, and life aboard a submarine in, in combat in World War II. It's just, it's a fantastic, it's, it's Clancy before Clancy and much, much better, much, much better, right? Much better. Yeah. And, and you know, well, you know, I've met Ned Beach uh, many, many times and uh, got to know Ingrid, his wife, who's still living. Um, and I, I want to say this publicly, um, Ned Beach should have been an admiral. He should have become a senior admiral. Um, I, I don't think we'll ever know what knocked him off course at 06. And, and believe me, making 06 and commanding uh, submarines is, is, is perfect for anybody. But Ned Beach, you know, commanded um, famously in the Second World War, won um, silver, silver Stars, Navy Crosses, uh, goes on to be one of the first of the nuclear commanders. He commands the Nautilus on its epic underwater nuclear voyage. Triton, the, Triton I think. Triton, excuse me. Yep. Thank you. He is the military assistant to uh, President Eisenhower. Um, he's a, a, a superb writer. You know, it just, I, boy, he got robbed. Yeah, he got I, robbed. I, got I really him. believe that. And, and you know, there's all kinds of times in people's lives when you, you think, gosh, I should have gotten that promotion or I should have gotten that particular medal or I should have been early selected. I always say the three most random things in the Navy are, in fact, early selection, flag selection, and the awarding of medals appear to me to be at times quite random. But in, in Ned Beach's case, oh, my God, did we miss a bet. Yeah, that's yeah. an inter. I wonder why. I wonder why. If you read his memoir, Salt and Steel, um, he kind of hints at it. He's, he's far too gracious and too gentlemanly. But I, as, as I pull out the threads and talk to a few other people, I believe that 
when he was in the White House as an 06, someone in the Pentagon tried to influence him to influence a promotion list of some kind. And he did the right thing and said, of course, I cannot do that. And I think it got him cross-threaded. Um, he alludes to that, but in a very gentlemanly way. Well, um, as you know, it doesn't take much, right? Uh, especially when you get to those rare, the rarefied air of of 06, you know, yeah. in, in zone for, yeah. for flag. I, I like you, I didn't know him as well as you did. I, I actually, I have a picture in my office of me and, and Captain Beach and Ron Chambers, who was the, the head of the press at that time when Punk's War was first published. I got to do a few signings with him. I got to listen to him. You know, he had these huge forearms. He exuded this type A leadership. Yeah. So wise, so, so much confidence and yeah. calm about him. I'll tell you the one thing that tweaked him, and I watched this happen a few times. For some reason during this era, Mids took to saying beat army at the end of the national anthem, which was <laughs> that just he would he would actually dress them down. Uh, like how inappropriate that was. He's like, this isn't Navy Blue and Gold. Do not say beat army at the end of the national anthem. I just remember him. I, I could I, just I say picture don't say beat army when we stop singing this. Yeah, yeah, I could just picture there, I could just know, picture beat. that. And and believe me, I would not want to be dressed down by Ned Beach. He's a pretty serious old pump-kicking diesel submariner in his DNA. And uh, it kind of comes out in the book a little bit. Um, hey, last last thought. And um, I, I mean this in the, in the most positive way. Uh, and I hope I don't have to exercise this option for quite a while. But I've decided to be buried at the U.S. Naval Academy Cemetery. And so one of the things you do is you kind of pick out your spot. And so I was taken to the cemetery and kind of walked around. Well, would you like to be here or over here or over there? And I picked the spot right next to Ned Beach, right up in front of Beach Hall. And I, I so Ned and I, I, I like to think of myself as a naval writer um, and, and Ned is too. And, and we will, we will sail on forever uh, right there. And I, well, I don't that, mean that, but I, 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 neighborhood right now. I mean, depending on, <laughs> not that I'm wishing you to move on just yet, but, uh, there, you'll have a lot of acreage around your plot there. I know but, that was another part that appealed to me. It was sort of up on a hill and great views. And, you know, I, anyway, um, I think a lot of Ned beach to say, we least. could say, we'll say hi as we walk out the front door of beach. <laughs> Please. Assuming that <laughs> you pass before I do, which maybe is a bad assumption. Hey, let me let me grab one other one on the fiction list because yes, it ties to my uh, current book that's out before the Sailor's Bookshelf. That's 2034, a novel of the next world war. That book is about a war between the U.S. and China that occurs because of a miscalculation between vessels at sea. And the best book about that, I think, is the Bedford Incident by Mark Raskovich, which is a story, a Cold War story set in the waters off the coast of Greenland between uh, the USS Bedford and a Soviet submarine. And the tension escalates and ratchets up and there's a kind of a shocking ending. It's also a superb Cold War movie. Uh, Richard Widmark plays the captain of the Bedford and uh, Sidney Poitier is in it as a, a journalist who has embarked. Um, and uh, it, it is about miscalculation. And as I went to write 2034, a novel of the next world war, which begins with a Bedford-like incident at the beginning, 
um, which both nations underestimate and they lose control of this ladder of escalation. Um, the Bedford incident was very much my eye, and it's it's on that list of fiction as well. Great example. Yep. Uh, so let's move on to sailors in nonfiction. Okay. Um, uh, I, well, the, one, the one that jumped out at me was, uh, and, and, and is one of the for probably five or six on here that I've read is a uh, hundred day, one hundred days, the memoirs oh. of the Falklands Battle Group commander. So a lot of lessons uh, for the U.S. Navy from watching what happened in the Falklands War between Great Britain and, and Argentina in the early uh, early 1980s. So uh, talk about uh, Admiral Woodward uh, and his book. Yeah, Sir Sandy Woodward. Um, met him once. He's passed away now. Um, I have a, a signed copy of the book as a result of that meeting. Um, he was a nuclear submariner had never commanded surface ships at sea. Um, and yet um, he was the flag officer who was sort of closest to the action. And so they made him the strike group commander. And this is kind of the British Navy, right? You're an admiral, get out there and take command. So he sails this, uh, for the time, massive flotilla uh, down to the Falkland Islands. And, and three big things become apparent which I think are good lessons for the, the U.S. Navy. One is uh, war at sea is not bloodless. Uh, ships will sink. Sailors will die. There will be fires. Damage control matters. Um, it is not going to be a layup when you go to war. And they're, by the way, fighting the Argentines, who are not exactly a military powerhouse. But the Argentines, to give them credit, use innovative tactics, use their capabilities, um, it becomes quite a pitched battle and a near-run thing. So number one lesson from Sandy Woodard is there will be combat. There will be math on this test. There will be combat. Lesson number two is um, subsurface matters a lot. And it was the British nuclear boat um, uh, that was able to take out the Belgrano the big uh, Argentine capital ship, effectively that ended any potential the Argentines had to sortie their surface ships, which were reasonably capable. They never even came back to sea again because of one British nuclear submarine floating around out there. So not that we need any big reminder of how important that subsurface component is, um, but that's an important lesson. And number three is combat in the end is personal leadership. It's personal. And, and you see those sea captains of those British ships, in the words of their flotilla commander, their admiral, describing their courage, describing their heroism, and the heroism all the way down the, the, those chains of command. As these ships are sinking and people are dying around them, um, their personal courage becomes very much a part of the story of the Falklands. So it is a, a powerful book. I recommend it often to junior officers in the sense that, you know, so often we think war is going to be on the computer screen in the Aegis Command and Control Center. It's not. And uh, I tried to bring some of that into 2034 as well. So, so we got a guy perfect. in the chat uh, named Brett Neiser who asks any books on the Brownwater Navy on the list. Well, it not it wasn't on the list, but I, I love Tom Cutler's book, um, Brown Water Black Berets, I think is the name of it. Help me out. Uh, yep. 
Um, and Tom Cutler, if you don't know uh, retired commander Tom Cutler, he's been an absolute fixture at the Naval Institute as long as I can remember, uh, combat veteran from those brown water days. Um, he's become a professional expert across every aspect of being a mariner. He edits books on navigation, ship handling. He was my editor on this book, and I want to publicly thank Tom Cutler. Um, and so the, the book I would recommend is that one, um, Brown Water, Black Berets, Tom Cutler. Good call. Good call. Uh, sir, we, we touched on this at the beginning a little bit, uh, but The Perfect Storm by Sebastian Younger. Uh, so a story of, of sort of this um, almost a, a missed news event when it happened. I think it was September 1990, uh, towards the end of, uh, of hurricane season. It's way up farther north than, than uh, most hurricanes really, you know, get newsworthy. It's not slamming into Florida or the Carolinas, right? It goes up off the coast of, uh, uh, of Canada, you know, and, and New England, and just slams unexpectedly the fishing fleet out on the Grand Banks. Uh, so touch on that one and, and, and maybe some um, some lessons that you took from that book uh, for just being a mariner and the, the toughness of you know survival at sea at times. First and foremost, I, I would highly recommend reading the book and watching the movie. They really fit together very nicely. And... Um, Secondly, I think in many ways it's George Clooney's greatest role, and I think it's certainly Sebastian Younger's greatest book. And I'm a fan of Sebastian Younger. He's written a number of very, very good books. But something comes together in this story. And, uh, of course, again, this is a long-line swordfish, sword boat, they call it, small crew of four, and um, it's a small craft, and they get caught out there but they get caught out there because their captain fails them because the, the Clooney character is under some financial stress himself and is, is also has some ego involved. And he just, despite knowing um, how much time they have and where the storm's coming from, um, he is someone who just always wants to press on and he just, he, he goes too far. He takes too far. And it's contrasted with the Linda Greenlaw character that I mentioned, part of that same fleet working for the same employer who says, nope, I'm going to be a little more prudent as a mariner. So I think this one is probably in the category of Ernest King's admonition to us that the, the mark of a great ship handler is never get in a situation that requires great ship handling. The mark of a great mariner is never getting a situation that requires you to go one-on-one -on -one with 40-foot waves off the Atlantic coast in the middle of a perfect storm. So Robert, if we could, let's take it to 30,000 feet as we as we sort of outro here. Um, what would your recommendation be in, in general to junior sailors, either enlisted or officers, with respect to where reading fits in being a naval professional? I think it's at the heart of everything we do. And every book, every novel you pick up in particular, but even works of uh, nonfiction, every book is, is a time machine. It's gonna take you to a different time and place. Every book is a simulator. You get to put yourself in that situation. 
for a junior officer, for example, read Mr. Roberts, um, a story of life on a, an old beat up rust bucket sailing to Timbuktu in the Second World War. But it's really a story about leadership at the deck plate level. You can put yourself in that book. What would I do if I were Ensign Pulver? What would I do if I were Mr. Roberts? And, and thirdly, uh, books are the heart of our professional skills. Um, as the captain of a destroyer, USS Barry, I felt like I was the best mariner on the ship. I probably was, best ship handler on the ship. But every time we got ready to get underway, every time we got ready to do an unrep and underway replenishment at sea, I'd pull down my copy of uh, ship handling. I'd pull down the watch officer's guide. I'd refresh myself. And all the more important for junior officers to pick up those books, know the canon of your profession. And that is the series of books written by the U.S. Naval Institute. Fantastic. Yeah, love it. So, so the, the book, book is called, Sailors. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, the book is called The Sailor's Bookshelf, 50 Books to Know the Sea by Admiral James Tavridis, U.S. Navy retired. Admiral Tavridis, always great to talk to you. And uh, for our listeners, I, I got to say, uh, you are the chair emeritus of the Naval Institute. You served as our chair for six years until I think 2018 was when you uh, turned over with uh, with Bob Work. And, and I, I want to thank you also. Many of our proceedings authors know this, but you go through every issue of proceedings and you uh, pick out the top five or six uh, authors or, or stories that you read, articles you read that, that, that month and you send personal notes uh, to those young authors, many of them young, many of them active duty. And, and then we hear back from them. We're like, I got an e I got a, a letter, a handwritten letter from Amos Devrita. So <laughs> it makes their day and uh, or week or month. And, and so we, we greatly appreciate the fact that you do that because it helps to uh, stimulate many of those authors to continue to write for us. So thanks. Thank for you. As, as you both know, I've been associated with the Naval Academy since I was a midshipman in 1973 or four went over to the Naval Institute headquarters, sat down with the young Fred Rainbow. Think about that for a minute. The young Jim Stavridis and the young Fred Rainbow and uh, had a conversation about professional writing. I've published in proceedings at every level of my career. I've written 11 books. Um, the, the organization that has most deeply influenced my professional life is not the Naval Academy. It's not the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. It's not the National War College, or a thousand other places. It's the U.S. Naval Institute. And I say thank you to the Naval Institute, and thank you, Bill, and thank you, Ward, for all you do to carry that torch today. Well, thank you, Admiral. The influence that you've uh, imparted on both Bill and I is uh, you, it can't be measured. And I will just tell the audience that the Admiral truly has walked the walk with respect to this thing. He is the poster child for the Independent Forum and continues to be to this day. So thanks for that effort, Admiral. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. See ya. All right. That'll do it for this episode. This and every episode is brought to you by the membership of the Naval Institute. For more on membership, please go to usni.org slash join. All right, Bill. Look forward to seeing you again soon. It's already Christmas week. It'll, it'll be in the new year, I think. All right. So take us out. All right, that'll wrap it up for uh, 2021, and we'll see you back here again on the Proceedings Podcast in 2022. Have a great holiday season, and be safe.
And as always, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you guys again soon.